It didn't melt as well as I thought it was going yeah, to. Yeah, it tasted like dusty ass, like rotten nuts. <laughs> Did he? It's World Nut Day, by the way. It's what? I think it's World Nut Day. Did you eat the entire... Um... I ate all of it, yes. <laughs> um, for those who are interested here, we've got a a package here of dark almond organic chocolate. Um, it's very nice packaging. I was very excited to eat it. It even tasted okay because I'm a man of very low standards. <laughs> Um, and the packaging, I'm reading a date here that says 42817. Okay, so can I so can I just talk for a second? Hopefully I don't die. Can I just talk for a second yeah. about how chocolate typically lasts three seconds in this house because you eat it? Yeah. And so, like, why would I ever look at the... How has that been here for this long? And it's been in this room, in this recording studio. I'm being victim shamed right now. <laughs> I had I some, too. I had some of the chocolate, too. But you're mad about something. I am mad about uh, would, something. Would you like to please tell listeners what you're mad about? There is a woman who is an editor and an event planner for books or whatever who wrote uh-huh. a really um, ridiculous you op-ed found a take. in Publishers Weekly. Uh-huh. And so I was really excited because... Um, the because the title of this op-ed is what the heck is happening to book titles and there's like an interrobang at the end of it good clean book title yeah right and so i thought it was going to be something about the like can we come up with a book title that isn't just like all of the other book titles with the girl and fires and yeah flames and darkness and ice and cities of Something. Yeah, the rhetorical question is not bad. The rhetorical question is not bad. Because there are things happening. And with I book also thought it was going to be something on. that was maybe like cheeky because it was using an interrobang in the you know, in the in the beginning. Turns out this lady is just sad that we're like putting the word ass in titles now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're mad that this person is mad about swearing in book titles. So you, I just want to get you on the record. You're pro-profanity. Well, Eric, somebody for... once gave us four stars on this podcast because I used the fuck word too they much. Did. They did give us four stars for it. And I respect that person a lot for it, honestly. Yeah. Um, so, well, I don't know. Talk about it. You. So there is there is undeniably a trend right now. Yes. Of, like you are a badass. Like I was gonna say, it's a lot. It's usually nonfiction. It's almost I would say entirely yeah. nonfiction that is kind of doing this thing where they're reaching for titles that use words like, you know, they use swear words or they'll use like, um, you know, pejoratives that are usually associated with like women and things like that to kind of reclaim the words, get people's attention, things like that. You know, and you are saying that. I love profanity. You, <laughs> I don't know if you know this about me, Eric, but I love it. I did know that about you. I do actually. love it. Yeah. Learned it from my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I first said the word fuck when I was two and a half years old. Max Mininowski at daycare taught it to me. He got in trouble. It was great. Total degradation of our social norms. Total degradation. Um, um, we'll visit yeah. that on a later podcast. <laughs> so so basically, um, this, this woman is just like clutching her pearls mm. because the words are like, confusing and point to a decline in moral and and intellectual like rigorousness it's a cheap trick she's saying it's a cheap trick and so she seems to be arguing that it's a cheap trick from like the point of view of it's you know there's a certain like moralistic element to it but i will say that while i don't have the same problem overall that this person does with this sort of book titling I do get a little bit tired of the trend. I do think that it has become, you know how like, because profanity and things like that, they are so, it's all contextual, right? Like a word has to feel spicy in order for it to, you know, pop in the way you want it to. But if like every single thing we always, you know, if every single thing is called badass now, if every single thing is, you know, this person is whatever boring adjective AF, like... (laughs) I'm just a, I'm a little burnt out on profanity. Well, to be honest. okay, so here's so here's a couple of things. It's good boy winter. First of all, we're not doing profanity anymore. First of all, you are secretly an old man <laughs> and can't be counted on for this sort of thing. Uh-huh. Second, um, I actually think it's really smart from a marketing standpoint to to especially for like 
um, prescriptive nonfiction, yeah. which is fiction yep. that's like telling you how to do something, like self help, mind, body, spirit, etc. For prescriptive nonfiction, it's actually really smart. They've done studies that people who use profanity are are deemed and actually are, like, more truthful. Well, so I 100% believe that. Yeah. The question is whether or not I need to slap that on my, you know, 1695 trade paperback. I mean, but there's also there's also an element here where the, the profanity in a lot of cases, I think that this person is talking about, is profanity that's removed from the typical idioms, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you are a badass. Right. It's not, like... You are a bad We're donkey not or whatever, right? Ass. Like it's, it's yeah. <laughs> I mean, although, um, yeah. but like, but that that particular phrase, right, is the key phrase that communicates something different than the specific piece of profanity itself. Yeah. Also, you have, you know, the 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 books like the Ethical Slut and Cunt that are mm-hmm. very very consciously trying to take certain reclamation right and so like and that's that's kind of a thing of like but what about the young women it's like yeah people call us bitches and hoes and sluts all the time (laughs) because they're trying to hurt us maybe actually like if we think about that from a feminist standpoint and reclaim it then maybe it won't hurt as much you know like we're just trying to live here so i'll say (laughs) like the bit of this that i like checked out on like, yeah. where I was like, mm, this is not where I need to be. Um, and it comes from this line here. The person says, rather than fortifying the publishing industry with classy, clever, and thoughtful advertising, this unwelcome trend in the degradation of language will lead to further declines and threatened implosion. And they use, there's one adjective. If you're a sports fan, you already know what it is. There's one, classy. A- there's one adjective that gets tossed around, and it is coded like you would not believe. And that word is classy. Um, if someone's out, throwing around, <laughs> just that's just like a secret term for I'm a fucking racist. Well, it it could mean any it, it can mean can, any number of things. But, I mean it it but it usually refers to, yeah. I mean there's often a race element to it. It's a lot of like white sports writers will like throw that at like black players who they have deemed to be celebrating too much. You know, it's, it's that sort of thing. Like you're not being classy, right? Eric. Exactly. You oh, there's just no this player has no class. And like if you look at like their pattern of who they call classy and who they call not like it's pretty identifiable pretty quick but like it does it's like classy like i don't know man like i think that we can get away from that but the point is um that print run's official position on the issue is that all swear words are bad um it is now clean boy summer um and we're Eric, going- it is <laughs> november well it'll come around um but this is now a no profanity podcast um, we're gonna, you know, have a little prayer circle at the end too. It's gonna be great, um, but that probably means that we should welcome you to the show. And so, welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, Laura Zass. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. <laughs> I was I was gonna say the fuck word, and I couldn't figure out how because I didn't have enough time to prep for it. Oh my god! Thank goodness for that. Um, fuck. We've got. Okay, now I'm done. Wow. Wow, you've degraded and imploded this podcast. I mean, with your we're accents. not classy. So. Sickening. Sickening yeah. display. Absolutely. Um, but we've got a fun show for you today. We're going to be talking about um, a new freelance law that um, charitably can be said to be backfiring. Um, and <laughs> That's the nicest thing you maybe have ever said about this yeah. particular thing. Apart from that, um, we're going to talk a little bit about um, some larger, yeah, some other big publishing things, you know, how it usually is on this show. But uh, before we get to any of that, how about the basic rundown? Yes, welcome. It is October, the spookiest month. Mm-hmm. If you have scary movie recommendations, send them to me, not the to Eric. most profane month. It's a month of <laughs> sinners. This is Repent. the month I, this is, this is my anniversary month, Eric. Repent. Actually, yeah, the, the point stands. Um, yeah, so anyway, we will have three special episodes for you this month. The Query Show and the First Pages Show are always there um, on Patreon. These are where we critique real queries or first pages submitted to us by real listeners, critiqued by real us. So send them to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. We will also have a flex episode. This one is going to be on conferences. And so if you follow me particularly on Twitter or actually like any of the print run accounts, there have been retweets. I did a really like angry thread on it a couple of days ago. And I have lots of thoughts and feelings about conferences. But this um, this particular episode will 
take kind of the ideas from that thread and from a couple of other conversations that we've had and really turn it into how to get the most out of your conference. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, if you haven't, if you are hearing this for the first time or just don't really know what all these special episodes are about, head on over to Patreon. Um, and if you have any other questions, like what kind of sweater Eric is wedding or is wearing, mm-hmm. um, you know, like how, you know, what my favorite swear word is, etc., cetera, um, send them to us. Again, our address is printrunpodcast at gmail.com. So um, we are first going to be talking about something that sort of came up um we're going to be talking first about the gig economy, yes. folks, um, that classic thing we know and love. Um, and really, we got kind of a stir this last week because there's a new bill that's going into effect uh, January 1st in California. I think it's called AB5. Assembly or Bill 5. Yeah. Yep. And essentially what this bill ostensibly aims to do is cut down on the amount of um, freelancing that like media companies hire out, right? Which, again, to set this up. Like the problem that I think most uh, freelance editors, writers, especially you know journalists, anyone in media can identify is that most major publishing companies are they're getting all of their content from freelancers now, right? Like the the position of staff writer is dwindling. We see it all the time with layoffs. Um, they would rather instead pay freelancers. Uh, for that same content while also not paying benefits, while not paying a salary, while paying them less in general for the task. Um, and so this bill, at least on its very bare face, and we're going to unpack what it's actually going to do in a minute, but the idea is, well, hey, companies can't just get all their work from freelancers anymore. You have to do that from employees. And so it puts a cap. It says, if you hire someone to do freelance writing for you 35 times, which sounds like a lot, but if it's, not. if it's quick content, if it's a blog post, if it's marketing, co- you know, all that kind of stuff, like that's the sort of thing that can add up very quickly. If you hire someone 35 times, you're no longer allowed to hire them again for freelance work. And now the idea you here, have to give them benefits, right? The idea, yeah, exactly. You have to start basically treating them like a full time employee um, or some kind of employee rather than just an independent contractor. Right. And like, so you're going to be responsible for their work because th- what they're really doing is you as a company are skirting labor laws by hiring this person for what is ostensibly part-time or full-time without well, paying them. Well, and so we should talk about, before we even get into what this bill is actually going to do in practice, we should talk a little bit about that because one of the reasons this is kind of a hot-button issue is because not only are publishers, and I, I'm saying publishers here, I think mostly what I mean is like magazines or like websites that hire and, you know, hire people for online content. content. Publishers. Yeah, exactly. Like. This does, I think, eventually bleed into book stuff, but it kind of starts elsewhere. And anytime you start hearing from staff writers and stuff, like, hey, they want, you know, they want either to be there to be more jobs, they want there to be, have better benefits, anything like that, you know, and especially when we start hearing unionization talks at various magazines and newspapers, which have come up a lot lately, and there's been a lot of really great efforts in that front. But one thing that, um, like one major, major piece of leverage on the side of the bosses, in this case the you know the publisher, is that they can there's a, like a giant pool of talent that's willing to work for them, you know, in the form of freelancers that they can get to do stuff that they don't want to hire staff writers for. Like they have this piece of leverage where it's like we don't need to hire more staff writers, we don't need to give you benefits, we don't need to do any of these make any of these concessions for you because we can get what we perceive to be your value elsewhere. Right. And so this sort of bill is kind of designed to or it's said it's is said from the people who made it to be designed. I don't take anyone at their word on these sorts of things, but it is said to be designed to kind of try to cut down on that, right? Like you can't just use freelancer pools as a means of like beating down your own staff writers and um, you know, getting content on the cheap. So So. to to put a pin in that for a second, um, bills like this, I think we can probably all agree that they're technically a good idea, right? The whole point of a bill um, is aiming to crack down on companies that are like misclassifying employees as independent contractors. So the biggest, you know, the biggest ones of these, like you think about ride sharing, right? Like an Uber or a Lyft where... You have so there. There are like legal definitions of what a contractor can do, um, or what they what they can do. To be a contractor, you need to be 
providing a service that is outside the regular day-to-day business needs of a company, right? And so you Mm -hmm. think about Uber or Lyft, and these are companies who are definitely misclassifying their employees as independent contractors because there is nothing to those companies except for the the work that the independent contractors if you would are doing, have them which is tell driving. It, if you would have them tell it they have no labor, right? Like it's right. we don't have any employees that are doing this. It's all just independent folks. Exactly. Right? And so for companies like that, that sounds super great, right? You know, you do thirty five rides in a year and then all of a sudden like, oh yeah, it's cracking down. People in California who are working for you need to be paid like they're actually working for you, which they are. Right. Um but then you apply that to writing Mm -hmm. and it sounds like it's great you know (laughs) i mean it's one of those things where you know if you think about it for five seconds the idea of trying to crack down on this like repeated use of freelancer and like you'll hear people you know in the writing industry called like permalancing right like where you know it's just people get stuck in these freelance roles and companies don't really feel any impetus to hire them that of course is something we want to crack down on for reasons we're going to get into in a minute but if you think about how this is actually going to be applied, mm-hmm. like what's going to happen? Someone's going to hit their 35 article piece of content, whatever you want to classify the work as. Limit, and they're simply going to stop hiring that person and find somebody else for it. Because, and like this, this is where I think like the major miscalculation is, like assuming that this bill has been written in good faith, which I think that I think it's just like deeply flawed as opposed to being like this pernicious thing. But like it's that. It comes from a place of, like, this This formula would work if these publishers actually saw value in what these independent contractors were giving them. Like, if they said, oh, we've hired this person 35 times because we really think that they specifically are great. And then once we hit that limit, they would think, oh, well, we can't lose person X. We can't lose Laura. She does really great work for us. I do do great we, work. <laughs> we need to keep her on, and thus we are going to be willing to pay the benefits. But that isn't actually what's going to happen. What's going to happen is they're simply going to toss whoever it is aside and say, okay, well, we got to just broaden our pool a little bit, and they're going to start over with somebody else because – and this is kind of where I want to get with this discussion because mm-hmm. I think it's wide-reaching. I think it applies to the book industry. I think it applies to all sorts of different stuff like as it relates to publishing is that so many of these companies don't see value in their writing, in right. like the writing or the content they produce. They, in terms of like all the editorial quality or all the things you would think of as quote-unquote good, right? Like they're looking for like production and churn, right? Like, they don't actually care that much about whether, like, the specifics of who's producing this stuff and why. Like, it's just a matter of they need content so they can stick ads on it or they need content because they need to drive engagement in some way so that they can get their actual money, you know, elsewhere by being a site that has a certain amount of engagement or, you know. Like, the point is that in in their grand equation, having, you know, paying for good writing is a very very minimal part of it Mm -hmm. and because of that they are not going to blink an eye at hitting the 35 well just think about think about the claim that these that these websites or these magazines that publish content are claiming from a legal standpoint and from a labor standpoint that the creation of that content is not a key part of their business that's i think the best way to put it absolutely because it is like the law does stipulate like if if you're like if you are a a company that if you're like a if you're a website of articles and the you know that means like a core integral function of your piece would be having writers write articles right like and so there therefore you wouldn't be able to just freelance that out because it's a core part of your business you have to have someone on staff do that but <laughs> what's happening here is basically the naked admission that actually the business model doesn't really rely on mm-hmm. the articles. Like what we're actually doing is something far different that doesn't involve creative talent whatsoever and would actually gl- gladly treat creative talent as entirely interchangeable, as totally disposable. And what this law is going to do is set that disposable limit much shorter. And it, <laughs> there's <laughs> it's a bleak. There's I mean, something I know it's bleak, here. Um, the, the lawmakers who are in charge of this bill – um, when asked to explain why the cap for freelance writers was at 35 projects a year, all they did 
was say that it was arbitrary. It was originally 25, and then they received a little bit of pushback, and then they upped it to 35. Which is still the same amount just of arbitrary. Ludicrous. They literally just applied another round number to it. Like, right, there's no... <laughs> absolutely, absolutely ludicrous. But so when you when you think about it, like, like truly... Um, the the you know we have freelancers in California who are panicking about what this bill means about if this bill only applies to that thirty sixth article that they make or if it's thirty five retroactively they're thinking about moving out of California because these are there are places that are now just not going to hire people in, from California and you know you think about how to really crack down on this because we have talked before on this podcast about how newsrooms and and other places getting rid of in-house talent is is really really a problem not just from a labor labor perspective but also from a quality perspective because if you don't have a staff writer they're not able to produce the deep dives that i think are so valuable in in periodicals and like fundamentally so we we asked ourselves the question today like okay so so this bill it's aiming to do a good thing in a shitty way mm-hmm. okay so how how would we solve this problem in a way that doesn't hurt the people who are literally begging for work and yeah. money like how I'm, would we solve this well i mean there's no it's tricky because there's there's no easy answers that are easy to implement. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, what there really is, like if you ask me, there's, I mean, one, I don't even know how you would do this, but you'd have to get, like you have to get venture capital out of these models. You know what I mean? Like the first- well, Explain well, explain what, why and well, what how. I, what I mean is that like so many of these media companies are kind of bought and sold, you know, um, on things that have nothing to do with the writer. You know, they're invested in because- you know, they see, you know, certain advertising opportunities that have nothing to do with the content of the site. And that's why you see things like layoffs and all this stuff. And so it's like the real reason like so much of this is happening is because like the big money is just like shifting around very much in a haphazard manner in a way that doesn't actually understand um, content production, doesn't really understand journalism or writing. It's just like like idiots buying magazines like it's kind of like honestly like I know that sounds kind of like trite but like that is like what's happening and I mean the other thing I would just say like the real this is both like the solution and the way to enact other solutions but like it's having an organized labor force right like you're seeing big um, big surprise that that take is coming from print run (laughs) (laughs) but like no I mean I just think you know you look at and you're you're do you are seeing it you know there's you know the freelancers unions popping up all over the place which is really really great to see but like you have to be coordinated on this stuff you have to have staff positions like everyone is in a precarious spot right like staff can be laid off mm-hmm. at any point you know freelancers are being not only exploited themselves but used to exploit people on staff and the answer just has to be like coordination it has to be a united front that demands certain things in certain conditions that doesn't allow freelancers to be taken advantage of and also doesn't allow their positions right. to in their in their work to be used as weapons against staff writers and that's really i mean that's a really difficult thing to to work on right now in publishing because everyone's job is so precarious right and like it's like I mean, this is kind of the thing with unions. It's like you don't need one or you don't like think to have one until you need one. And by the time you need one, it's tough to make one, you know, and And everybody's going to get fired. It's like you have to I just think like that. But that is the key. Like it's having a workforce that is able to kind of unified, be unified and demand certain things. And like you do like this is also kind of bleak. But one small like consolation, Victor, you have seen is some of these shops that do have unions you know, when these inevitable layoffs come, and I want to read a stat here in a minute from this article I'm looking at, um, when these, like, this just mass, you know, when we talk, we've talked about this a bunch of times on the show, like, just whole editorial staffs, whole, you know, writing groups, you know, just getting put under, like, one thing a union does do is, is it means you get, like, severance and stuff like that. It mm-hmm. makes it a little less, like, precarious right yeah exactly like there's ways to lessen some of this for the individuals we're trying to care about and i don't know just like 
I want to read from this article. It's from a woman named Rebecca uh, Bodenheimer in Dame Magazine. Um, and just like, so here's two paragraphs here just to kind of give some context to like what's like happening over the last decade in some of these places. But here we go. It shouldn't be news to anyone that the media industry has been hemorrhaging full-time staff jobs in the past decade as outlets shift from print to online and rely increasingly on freelance writers. A recent Pew Research Center study shows a 25% drop in jobs between 2008 and 2018, with a steep decline specifically for traditional newspapers, 47%. So far, this year's job losses are at over 7,200. Vice and BuzzFeed have laid off hundreds of people in or eliminated verticals, while other outlets have shuttered completely, including Pacific Standards, Splinter, Think Progress, The Village Voice. In May, the entire 161-person staff of the New Orleans Times-Picayune was laid off. The following magazines have ceased print publications and quote-unquote pivoted to online only with an accompanying reduction in staff. Redbook, Glamour, Self, Teen Vogue, ESPN The Magazine, Computer World, Jet, and Nylon. Just this month, it was reported that newspaper behemoth USA Today could also be phasing out print publications soon. Like, it's just, it's everywhere. This is going to happen to, to basically everywhere. There's going to be consolidation. There's going to be kind of pivoting to online only. There is going to be basically, like, I just want to, like, get at the fundamental underneath this, right? Which, so a lot of it is just how capital moves around at this point in history. But, like, another part of it is just, like, there's this new strategy happening, and you don't just see it in magazines. You see this in book publishing too, with things like shrinking advances. You know, no, um, you know, no middle, you know, no mid list things like that. Like you can draw a line between that stuff and this, based on just. And you tell me what you think about this, Laura. Mm-hmm. Just this fundamental belief that publishing doesn't think writer is a job anymore. Yeah, I, like I mean that, they don't. Like I think that that is sort of the er concept behind. A lot of this is that publishers and people who make who control the publishing decisions, they just don't see writer as something like a full time job. They see it as something that can be farmed out. They see it as a task that can be performed by any number of people. And as long as they do it at enough volume, then everything will be fine. I mean, right? we talk we talk a lot about how publishers have been using um, writers and you know whenever anything bad happens or or maybe not even bad but just kind of like not good for our shareholders right um that ripples down to the writers and and the readers you know the 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 dissolution of the midlist yeah the you know transition to um no no advance in prints, you know, we, we have lots of lots of examples of that. And it's, you know, it's always devaluing the writer. It is always devaluing the writer. And it's it's created this scenario where like working like working as a writer, it's come to mean something entirely different than it used to because working as a writer is no longer something that the writing industry thinks you should be able to do. Yeah. They think that it is a side gig. You know what I mean? Like, it's something that they would gladly, gladly turn it into. I mean, you should look at, like, what a Lyft or an Uber driver does. You know what I mean? Like, it's something that you're a contractor. And, yes, theoretically, you could drive an Uber all the time and be paid by the, you know, whatever granular increment enough to f- to make up those small living that you're hoping to make. But fundamentally, it's presented and structured like it's a side gig. Right. Like people who, you know, right now, um, you know, like debut novelists, you get you spend how many years writing a novel to have it sold for. Um, and this would be a this would be good news. Seventy five hundred bucks. Like, that is great. news. That would be really like, you know, like that just doesn't it doesn't cut it like the math isn't there. And we just don't talk about how the math isn't. I mean, I you hear people kind of gesture at it, but like at a fundamental level. Something has to happen where we say, actually, we think, like, just on a conceptual, like, everyone will, everyone will start pointing numbers. They'll start to pointing in margins and publishing. They'll start to point at what would happen if we raised advances. If we did these things that were pro-writer, what would happen to business models? But at some point, you have to look at things from scratch and say, like, we believe that as a culture, as an industry, writer is something that a human being can be. 
yeah. and work and function. And right now, the industry does not believe that. And you can you, people will tell you that they believe that, but they don't actually because it would change if they did. And or it's only the people who have already earned it are allowed to be that. Exa- no, exactly. Nobody it's something knew. you have to earn your way. And in, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like um, it's it does bleed into other things. Like you know, we've talked about you know kind of the abuse of the contractor status, you know, from companies. But like that's a thing that happens in agenting too. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like whole lot of agents work as quote unquote independent contractors and get paid with their you know 1090s and like they're working that job full time they're reading at night they're spending all day working at clients like you and I did it you know what I mean like it's not it's this industry is taking your full time work and turning you into a contractor that they do not have to basically pay, but definitely not support in ways beyond just and the giving you a pittance here and there. The definition and, of that is that if you cease to do this work tomorrow, it's fine because you're not part of a structure. Exactly. Right. Like, and we'll find somebody else because we don't think what you're doing is that valuable. Yeah. And and we'll find somebody else who doesn't need to be who doesn't like need to be making money. That is that is kind of the big problem. That's actually the big thing. The big thing in writing specifically is that there is there are always more spots for the jobs than there are jobs. And a lot of those jobs can can stay low because a lot of the people who are interested in publishing by virtue of you know, the branding that we've been doing for a hundred years in this industry, which are, you know, only there there aren't a lot of like blue collar like authors or agents or editors. Like it's it's we, you know, we did an episode like a year or two ago about the origin of Summer Fridays, yeah. right? And about the whole point of a Summer Friday, which is if you if you're not familiar in publishing, um, particularly in New York, you can work you know, a couple of extra hours Monday through Thursday and then either take every other Friday completely off or get Friday afternoons off. And the whole purpose of that is so that the executives could go to their houses in the Hamptons and just like do deals over cigars and like martinis. Right. Right. right? And that's like the real that's not like a fun perk of publishing. That is a that is like a a vestige of like a deep seated labor problem. Yeah. Yeah. And so like I guess I mean my my initial thought is when we think about, you know, periodical contractors, you know, a way to maybe crack down on these on these websites or these magazines. A really easy way would be to enact, I mean, I say easy, it's not easy, but an an alternative, a simple way would be to enact legislation that instead of limiting the capacity for an individual freelancer, what it would be is, hey, you produce individual con, you you produce um, content for your website that's original content. Great. If you produce X amount of original content for your for your periodical or your website, a certain percentage of that needs to be from staff writers. Like that is a way to do it that doesn't hurt anybody. Right. And might even create jobs. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) So I want to take this and I want to apply to the next thing. Yes. We're going to talk about. And so before we get into it, Laura, I'm going to read a sentence and I'm going to give the listeners a second to guess who it is the person speaking is talking about. Are you okay. ready? So this is an article about the Frankfurt Book Fair. Um, it's in Publishers Weekly. The Frankfurt Book, Book Fair, if you don't know, is the second of two major rights fairs um, yeah. in the international public and commu- publishing community. The first, uh, which you and I were lucky enough to attend London this Book year, fair. is the London Book Fair. There's also, like, shout out to Bologna, which is just a children's fair. But we're not talking about Bologna because it's shout only out, kids. Shout out to Bologna, but it's just a children's fair. Um, so... <laughs> So um, this is an article about Frankfurt recap. We're going to talk, you know, I guess we'll have some passing thoughts about Frankfurt too. But like, um, so this is someone who, you know, was speaking on a panel um, from is the Global 50 CEO talk um, at the Frankfurt Book Fair. So this mm-hmm. is a lot of like publishing bigwigs from across. If you guys don't know, the it, Global 50, it's a, it's a report that's published every year, basically like talking about actually it's the top 56 mm-hmm. publishers and kind of their metrics and the big misleading. takeaways. Yeah. 56. It definitely is misleading, but it doesn't sound as good. 57 when they add us. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so here's a sentence. <clears throat> if the Frankfurt community is a family then we are welcoming a new family member, said Wishenbart, who opened the conversation by asking, 
Lugan Beale to define this new family member. And so first off the bat, you know how I feel about familial language in workplace settings. I think it's pernicious. I think it's bad. It is always used to advance power. Um, don't Eric, ever do you're it. you're like my brother. Don't you say that. <laughs> Sometimes you have called me your work wife. I reject it. Actually, that's it, my favorite. Eric is my work wife. No. Yeah. No. But anyway, <laughs> we've welcomed the new family member to the publishing uh, Frankfurt community. And obviously, I'm gonna we're going to talk about Netflix um, is the new family member. In the pu- that classic really? person at the dinner table. Um, in the book publishing <laughs> fair is Netflix. Um, is, is Netflix. And they have come up because... Um, the question that they were debating at this panel um, is, and it's kind of a big fundamental thing, right, that cuts across a lot of things, which is basically, is Netflix a friend or a foe to the book bi- book business? That's how this article starts. It's kind of the question it tries to go on to answer. Um, and so the question is, are these, apart from Netflix, are these big streaming services, these giant, like, content aggregators that we're now seeing you know whether it's and content uh, creators right exactly actually exactly so that's where we're going to get yeah is like netflix or hulu or amazon. amazon or like disney you know are these people good for publishing or are they bad for publishing well and considering that hulu just won the booker <laughs> <laughs> they did hulu did win the booker you won't you will not convince me that that booker prize was not awarded because of Hulu. To Hulu instead um, of to like to Margaret Atwood. Well, yeah. the, the, the marketing campaign at that fair was, was Hulu-based. I mean, it's... It was. It was completely around the show. It was around the show. The marketing yeah. of the book was around the show. Anyway, so we're at, in a place now where Hulu is winning Booker Prizes. But... Because um, they really need the, the visibility. Exactly, Eric. yeah. No, it's nice to see struggling artists do well. Um, <laughs> but the question, like, if we're talking where we were a second ago is like... Writer isn't a job anymore, right? Like, it's not something, or writing books specifically isn't a job anymore. You can't really do it unless you've already done it. It's sort of this paradox that kind of cuts across all these other things that wants to force you into being an independent contractor for, make it a side gig that will last in in perpetuity. Um, But here, here is what I think is a glimpse of the writing future in a lot of ways, right? Because we've got, um, you know, and this is from the Netflix speaker here. I'll give you a quote. We look at the publishers and editors as partners. That is the best word. For us, the more collaboration, the better. She emphasized, and this is the part that I chortle at every single time. She emphasized that the company is not a competitor to the, to the book business. Our goal is to bring books to life on the screen and to life in a way that has not been done before. And that is very charming and nice, and it is a crock of shit. Um, because, because I just... If like, Netflix is listening, please buy all of our properties yeah, first of all, for books. First of all, Netflix, call me. We, uh, uh, we are nothing if not um, a study in dichotomy. I will sell out immediately. Um, call me up. You can have all my <laughs> properties. Um, but anyway, no, like the point here is that um, we've sort of reached this this thing where publishing has now identified that the real place it's going to make money is not actually selling books anymore, mm-hmm. right? It's going to make money by selling the rights to its content to streaming services. Like yeah. it's, it's TV now. Well, and this Publishers Weekly um... – Recap of Frankfurt actually notes that Netflix spends ten billion a year on content development, whereas the revenue for Penguin Random House is between three and four billion. Which is an interesting thing to point out comparatively when you also go on in the next sentence to say you're not a competitor. Um, <laughs> but it's it isn't yeah. So basically, they're saying like, look, we are the one. They're positioning themselves right. We Netflix are we the ones. Give you all of our money. We're the ones investing in creative content. Much more than you. They've got more. And that is the kind of thing like that makes me feel kind of like dwarfed and irrelevant. Like one thing that happens when you and I go to conferences, we say this every time, we've said it a bunch of times, is we go and we come away and we feel as though this whole scene wasn't for us. Right. Right. It's much bigger than us. It involves deals that have nothing to do with agents representing debut books like you and I. Or the quality of the book or the content of the book. Right. It is all about repurposing content. It is all about, you know, technology stuff. It's all about all these things that don't actually relate they don't really have anything to do with artistic merit. Exactly. And this it's starting to kind of feel like the real players, you know, you and I are these little mice scurrying around the feet of 
elephants. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's And we Netflix. hope to someday it's... have the elephants choose our, like, nut that we have collected as, as the nut us, that they want. To lift us gingerly upon their trunks. <laughs> Let's just push. Let's just spend the next like twenty be, minutes just like pushing this metaphor. I would like to be on its head in between the big slappy ears. <laughs> exactly. Like ride it. That'd yeah. be nice. Um, it's yeah. Wow, I'm touched. But <laughs> um, the point is like this is where it is now. Like we talk. Well, where's the money in writing? Where's the money in producing stories? It's here. It's here. And like a huge thing, you know, on your list specifically, one thing you've done really well with is like IP stuff, right? Like, yeah, it's IP. Producing... If you if you don't know, it's, it's it stands for intellectual property. Essentially, it's work for hire. Yeah, and publishers do this too, where Publisher, they have an yeah. idea and they find the writer for it. But like you look at that, and you look at the consolidation of some of these media, com- like these giant content companies, like Disney, for instance. I feel like every single week we can learn. we can we talk about Disney for a second? We can. Can we talk about the Star Wars trailer oh, yeah. that just dropped? <laughs> so last night I was sitting around, um, watching Monday Night Football as I, I often I do. Was, I was not as I often do on Monday nights, and I was talking to some of my friends who like Star Wars, and it turned out that they were also interested in Monday Night Football. Uh, which surprised me, but it was because, um, as I'm sure many of you know, the Star Wars trailer was going to debut at halftime, right? There's a new movie coming out on Christmas. They were going to show you the trailer for the first time at halftime of this game. And I'm sitting there for a while, and I was thinking, well, this is kind of a strange fit. Like, why would... Like why would we have like why would this be the right venue to hit for a these bunch fan, of nerds for, to to hit these fans like it feels like separate uh, ob- and obviously like both Star Wars and Monday Night Football are fairly like those are giant things that probably lots and lots of different people who like lots of different things also enjoy and so like on the one hand it makes sense but I was kind of piecing it together and then the very obvious truth hit me which is that Disney owns both of those things like Disney owns. It owns ESPN. Mm-hmm. It has Lucasfilms, right? Like, it's got the, you know, like, this is all the same fucking product. You know what I mean? Like, and so you're sitting there. I would like to point out that Eric just it's, swore. We've interrupted. We interrupted Clean Boy Winter to swear <laughs> at Disney. I'm sorry, Nikki. Very wholesome. Disney now owns us, actually. I, I, um, I mean, like, I have properties with Disney. Yeah. Like, I have I have authors <clears throat> with Disney. Um. So... But it's just like it got me thinking that like we're reaching this like content singularity, right? Where everything is going to be owned by the same place. Where you know Monday Night Football is literally being used as a vehicle to advertise for this other property, which it's like every single thing you watch is going to be simply a tool to cross promote something else, mm. you know. And it's all going to be it's all just designed as, and it's just. You see that, and you see this article here, and I maybe this feels tangential to the people listening to this, but it just all connects to me in a way that's like, well, so this is where we are headed in publishing. It's this is where what's we're going headed. on. And on one hand, like as an agent, I'm really excited about this because I feel like one of my strengths is giving authors the financial opportunity to really spend a lot of time working on their own work mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they're making money from IP. But from an artistic standpoint, this is really worrying because when we have a conglomerate that is just recycling the same content because they already own the rights through different mediums and they're doing spinoffs, you know, you're not anybody in science fiction or fantasy if you haven't written Star Wars tie-in novel. You know what I mean? And so, like, you have all of these big names who made it you know, off of their own IP or maybe off of, off of, you know, uh, some sort of collaborative work, you know, doing, doing big tie-ins. We have people writing for The Walking Dead. We have people writing for Star Wars. We have people, you know, and I've even done tie-in work. So like I'm a big fat hypocrite, but like where the money is. You're trying to work. Right. And, but so what, what that does to me is like, I am worried that because being a writer is not valued in these industries now and we have all of these big companies who don't primarily publish books publishing you know like getting new works and doing tie-ins like what that says to me is not that you can't make a living as a writer although you know how you are a writer will change but what it says to me is that we are fundamentally moving away and further and further and further away on top of that from your own 
creative ideas as the sellable product. Right. No, you're going to just, everyone is just going to feed the existing properties. Exactly. It's, and like, you know, on the one hand, like one way we've been kind of talking about this and one way the industry is used to talking about this in a way that I think needs some examination is that everyone, anytime you see something like this happen, it's like, oh, there's money, there's money over here for writers. And so that is, that's good. Like, it's good. Like, we have to look at something like this trend Mm -hmm. and say, well, it's, we have no choice but to call it a positive because it is an alternative where writers can go make a living. We should, you know, we should celebrate it because it's a chance for creative people to find, you know, a foothold. And all of that is true, I guess. But one thing, and this this comes back to our first discussion where it's like, well, what do we want to have? Like, fundamentally, if you were designing something from scratch before, like, what is it? What is your desired outcome? Apart, so the first thing I want are swear words and book titles. <laughs> apart from, <laughs> apart from just, apart from just like, um, being able to effectively chase the money wherever it is and having no say over where it goes. If you could design it how you wanted, what would it look like? Because to me, the answer to that in our first discussion is well, we would treat writer as a real job. We would start there mm-hmm. and we would build from that rather than trying to respond to the premise that it isn't one. And here, it's kind of like what you're saying. Like this, all this stuff, I don't really know why. And it's possible that I'm just like a curmudgeon. Um, which, well, you definitely are. But that doesn't but, mean what you're thinking isn't correct. Sure. But it's like, why would we want it to be this way? Why is it that writing a novel that is not a part of you know a giant media property that isn't for a streaming service like... Maybe, like, why is that something that we don't think is should be valued in the way it used to be? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, why can't that be what we design ourselves around? You know, why can't we protect that form? Why can't we, pro- like, it makes me a little bit sad, you know? Like, I because I, I, just to put my cards on the table, like, I don't stream very much stuff. Like, I don't like, I just like. And this I do. Is, I like reflexively, I just don't. I, I'm just not – I don't have very many sh- – I have way less shows now even than I did like a few – like I don't engage with this stuff and I find like these conver- these endless conversations about things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and just these endless spinoffs of every single thing to be really kind of tiresome and depressing in their own way because it just feels like we're getting How a How do you real- feel about the Lion King remake? Really negatively. <laughs> <laughs> but like my point is like we're getting to this point where like the economic conditions – for writers, you know, capital is now it's and this has probably always been true and probably this is its own episode someday that we should do and I would love to hear from people what they think about this cuz maybe we'll try to build something off it but like capital is now like shaping the sort of art that's viable mm-hmm. in a way that I really really find to be bleak and difficult to stomach. Well, taking and, taking kind of conversations from previous from previous episodes right like if we're if we're developing content based on what is already marketable Mm -hmm. then what publishers are doing and what what other creators are doing is they're not tastemakers right and that i think is what you and i fundamentally find the most invigorating about publishing is the op and working specifically in publishing is that we have the ability to have a small part in what is a taste making endeavor. Yeah. Right? Like it's yeah. it's it's that moment where we forget that people hold power over telling people like yeah. what what they should like or what they should watch sure right and just by spewing up like endless iterations of the same thing that we already know that they like like sure it's a safe bet but what that means is that we're we're losing we're losing that power in the larger cultural landscape yeah no i mean we are it's and it's just you know, we say a lot, like one thing I try to say, and I know, again, that it sounds like I'm like this crank every time we talk about the layoffs. Like a thing I like to always say is we are not yet grappling because it's too soon with the real effects of what shuffling up these institutions and like wrecking them and saying, oh, we'll just take all these people and put them elsewhere. Oh, we'll just take all this money and put it into this other thing as though it's like a totally neutral swap. I think the same is true for saying, 
actually writing debut novels isn't a viable thing for people to do anymore. Mm -hmm. Like that is a really, that makes me like sad. That make that's one of the sadder things I've ever thought on this show, honestly, like that, like we're taking this form that I've, and not just, I mean, I'm not a, some sort of niche hobbyist to say I love novels. You know what I mean? Everyone loves novels, but like this form that, really matters i think to a lot of different things and just saying you know you know what we're going to take all of our creative talent and we're going to tell them they have to go into this new thing they they have to make a star war they they need to go over here and write for this because that's where the money is and on the one hand if i were advising clients who had that particular ability who were like a fit i would say go do it like you should, I absolutely you would should, like a Star like, Wars like we're, tie-in. We're, we're agents. Like, our job is to help people find those opportunities. And if that's the job, I just, like, you know, at some point, like. Both can be true. At some we point. We can be excited and go after one of those things while being sad that, that we have to. At some point, you're the animal that goes extinct, you know, and I feel like <laughs> maybe I'm the animal. Like, I just. Which animal, though? I don't know. How about like who's who's going extinct lately? Who we got? I don't know. I was thinking about like what is it like the condor? Yeah, you could be a condor. The dodo bird. Like, oh yeah. Is that a real thing? Yeah, or is that it's, like a it's Dr. gone. Seuss no, thing? no, no. But the condor was gonna be extinct, and now it's yeah. like almost not gonna be. Come I don't back. know. Yeah, don't call but it it's like back. really big, and it's really like it's it's a bird which uh-huh. you love. I do love a good bird. It's a big ass bird. That's me. Yeah. The condor. Um, <laughs> That's well, a superhero anyway, name. But you get my point. Is like at some point with these discussions about where the money is and how publishing should work, we should say, what do we want? What do we want to happen? And how can we steer that way? It's the same thing with anything else. Like there's like this self-reinforcing logic that always says, well, wow, we, you know, this is how it is now. So the best thing that can happen is to just most effectively do this. And it's like at some point you got to like craft the system. And we don't craft the system in a way that I think is very true to the art. And that makes me sad. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Print Run. Thank you so much for joining us on this, the 115th episode. How exciting. Um, we, we watch for our special episodes on Patreon, and we will see you for a regular episode next week. Bye. Bye.